Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of FF Plus, your outlet for new release reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and today I'm going to have three new films to discuss. As usual, we are just going to jump right in. I know you're all probably here and excited to find out what I thought about the new Marvel joint, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. If you really want to, you can check the show notes, find the timestamp, and skip ahead to that review right away. But I would urge you to stick around because the other two films that I want to tell you about also are probably worth your time. First up is Say Hey Willie Mays from HBO Sports Documentary Films. It features new interviews with Mays, his godson Barry Bonds, and his son Michael Mays. Additional interviews include Hall of Famers Reggie Jackson, Orlando Cepeda, and Juan Marichal, alongside the late baseball legend Vin Scully, Hall of Fame broadcasters John Miller and Bob Costas, and Willie Mays biographer John Shea. The documentary is directed by Nelson George. What's it about? A film exploring the life and career of Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Willie Mays. So Willie Mays is one of the greatest all-around players in the history of Major League Baseball. Many feel that he changed the way the game was played, and early in the documentary, someone even refers to him as being an icon on the level of a Michael Jordan, that when Willie stepped onto the diamond, he had that sort of reverence from fans, fellow players, broadcasters, folks who covered the game, etc. I kind of want to start by setting the stage and just giving some context to why Willie Mays is considered one of the greatest all-round players in the history of the sport. Here are some stats, courtesy of MajorLeagueBaseball.com. He hit 660 home runs. He's a member of the 3,000 Hit Club. He won a batting title, four home run titles, and four stolen base titles. And he ranks among the all-time leaders in wins above replacement. He is the only player to have a season of 50 home runs and another season of 20 triples. He received a share of MVP votes every season from 1954 to 1966, and he finished in the top six in 12 of those 13 years. And he finished in the top three six times. Willie Mays racked up 124.1 wins above replacement player from 1954 to 1966. That was 27.7 more than any other player in that span. That's enormous. Hank Aaron was second with 96.4, and then Mickey Mantle was third with 90. So those are two of the all-time great players in the game as well, and he blew them away in being worth more wins for his team than they were over the course of these 12 seasons that they were all in their prime. Mays was named an All-Star Game starter a remarkable 18 times, the most for any player in Major League Baseball history. He won 12 gold gloves, the most by any center fielder. Willie Mays and current player Mike Trout are the only players in Major League history with multiple seasons of at least a 320 batting average, 25 home runs, and 30 stolen bases. He is the only player in Major League Baseball history with at least 3,000 hits, a 300 average, 300 home runs, and 300 stolen bases. Of course, he exceeded some of those numbers. He actually had, when he finished, 3,283 hits, 
660 home runs and 338 stolen bases. And in 1971, Willie Mays was named the inaugural recipient of what was at the time called the Commissioner's Award, later renamed the Roberto Clemente Award. And this is the honor given annually to a player who best represents the game of baseball through extraordinary character, community involvement, philanthropy, and positive contributions both on and off the field. So Mays was recognized not only for being a fantastic athlete, but also fantastic human being as well. The documentary goes all the way back to the start, and I'm really grateful that this was made while Willie Mays is still alive and with us. He's, I believe, 91 now. It was probably 90 when this was filmed. So he's getting old, but my goodness, he still has so much charisma about him, and he is a joy to listen to. And we get a lot of his perspective on his life and his career. He grew up in Alabama under Jim Crow, very racist time in America. The film tracks his playing history from his time in the Negro Leagues to his time in Major League Baseball. He was successful in the Negro Leagues, dominant there. Eventually, that league would fall apart after Major League Baseball poached their best players in the name of integration and brought them into the game essentially to profit off of them. Willie's approach to racism is brought up several times throughout the documentary. There are questions from other players, or there were at the time, about was he doing enough? He preferred to, quote, destroy you on the field if he had a problem with your feelings about him. And the documentary also covers the civil rights activism of other players during his career, and again, how they questioned Willie's more quiet role compared to some others. I found that part particularly interesting because he was such an iconic figure for the integration movement within baseball, one of a handful of players that really were impactful in changing the way that fans saw the game from being this all-white sport to a sport that a black player could come in and completely dominate the competition. Willie might have been the first person to ever be referred to as a five-tool player. I thought that was neat. Someone coined the phrase when talking about him. They didn't use the word five-tool, but this was the concept at the time, which is a player who can do all of these things at the highest level, like a 10 out of 10 in each of these categories, hit for power, hit for average, run, field, and throw. This is rare, and Willie Mays was one of the first to have that label put on him. He played for the New York Giants originally uh, for quite some time, and then I learned that he got drafted into the Army. Didn't know that, so appreciated the documentary's covering of this portion of his life, where Apparently, he spends two years being an entertainer who plays baseball for the troops. And this is where he created his well-known basket catch method as well. One of the things I really like about this, too, is the black and white archival footage of actual baseball games. And then also of some interviews with Willie uh, earlier in his life. I'm just a sucker for that stuff. And there's a good amount of it kind of interspersed 
with all of the interviews that we see. There's a somewhat lengthy section at the end of the film that is devoted to his relationship with his teammate Bobby Bonds and his godson, Barry. This shows Willie's involvement in Barry's home run record chases and eventual retirement. Understandably, I think this might annoy some fans because this documentary never acknowledges the controversy around the legitimacy of Barry Bonds's records due to performance enhancing drug use or rumored <laughs> alleged performance enhancing drug use. But this is an important connection in Willie May's life. So I think it makes sense for them to cover it. It's just a very obvious omission if you follow the sport. And it makes you wonder if you can really call this fully accurate if we're just kind of glossing over something that is maybe not the best look for Willie. And this is an issue that I have with a lot of documentaries that are covering subjects in the here and now. We want to see them at their best and really show how amazing they were and their impact on the sport that we're covering. But sometimes there are parts of them that maybe aren't the way that the public would agree with. And I think it's a little bit of a miss by not at least acknowledging that part here. That being said, again, your mileage may vary with how much that bothers you. There's also some fun behind the scenes outtakes that I enjoyed from the filming sessions. Like I said, Willie is just an absolute character and seems like a really good dude. And I would love to hang out with him and just talk about baseball, talk about his life even more. This is a really feels like a thorough documentary about his life and not just on the field, but off of it and his impact uh, in this era and this major changes that were happening to the game. And I, for one, did not know that much about him going into this. So I really appreciated it. Prior to this, he was just a name at the top of all of these stat categories that I would see or an answer to a trivia question that my friends and I might you know, have for each other about baseball legends. I didn't truly know his path. Now that I do, I have massive, massive respect for what he accomplished and like I said, I'm just so glad that they were able to get this done and that he could actually be a part of it so we could have that firsthand conversation with him and not solely be relegated to other people's views of him as a player and as a person. So I highly recommend this film. This will be airing on HBO and streaming on HBO Max both on November the eighth. Next is Summer Ghost from G Kids. It stars the voice work of Chiaki Kobayashi, Miyuri Shimabukuro, Nobunaga Shimazaki, and Rina Kawai. It is directed by Aundro and it is written by Hirotaka Adachi. What's it about? An urban legend says that lighting fireworks at an abandoned airfield will beckon the quote summer ghost, a spirit that can answer any question. Three teenagers, Tomoya, Aoi, and Ryo, each have their own reason to show up one day. When a ghost named Aeon appears, she reveals that she is only visible to, quote, those who are about to touch their death. Compelled by the ghost and her message, 
Tomoya begins regularly visiting the airfield to uncover the true purpose of her visits. So I'm a little bit late in reviewing this. My apologies. I had intended to do this one actually way back in the summer when the film was supposed to release in America. It got delayed. It just now came out here in early November. And so I'm finally getting around to talking about it. The three internet friends that are at the core of this story are essentially investigating this mysterious ghost reports. They go to this airfield. They light the fireworks. Gorgeously shot. Looks amazing from an animation perspective. And they summon this ghost that they want to learn from. Each of them has an individual reason for not being happy in their lives. And ultimately, they have to open up to each other about this over the course of the film. But one of the issues is that we spend most of our time with Tomoya and less with Ryo and Aoi. Now, that's not the end of the world. Tomoya is a good character to follow, but the film itself clocks in at just under 40 minutes. It is very much a short film and it moves super fast. So much so that I think when you take into account how much time it spends with one character, it wants us to have this emotional connection and reaction to the struggles of mental health and other issues that all three characters are dealing with in the course of the story. But it's hard to have that because you're moving at really a breakneck pace. Once the ghost appears, Tamoya starts having these interactions with her and they're insightful, they're they're lovely, and they're well-crafted. He learns that maybe it's not so great being on her side of life, I guess, and that there's a value to what he is experiencing now, even under the circumstances that he's frustrated by. The movie kind of turns into weird, like, search for her at some point as well. And there's like underpinnings of romance. It, it throws a lot at you in under 40 minutes. And it just ultimately kind of fell short for me. The emotions of the story are there in the visual and the auditory language. But I was kept at a distance from getting to really know all of the characters. And I think that would have helped to create a more powerful experience for me. The elements of a fantastic anime are here. Some of the elements. The animation is smooth and crisp. It is sometimes beautifully soft and other times it is very vibrant. And I think that it follows the mood of the story perfectly. And it's backed by a really gorgeous piano heavy score as well. And, and I think that it the concept here is nice and the intent is really something to be praised because it's trying to say something about dealing with self-doubts. And I, I just wish it wasn't so rushed and condensed. If it had been probably twice this long, stretched it out, let us get to know each of these characters more intimately, let them interact with each other more, and really start to feel for why they are in the mental state that they're in and why they really want to summon this ghost and in the ghost story as well like that's a whole other fourth main character with her own backstory and history and journey to go on 
So 40 minutes was just way too short for this. But the craft involved proves that this team is super talented. And I think it points to serious potential for a special future animated work. I will be greatly looking forward to whatever they do next. And I hope that it is a feature length anime film because I truly believe that they have something here. And when they put it all together, we will be wowed by that. But Summer Ghost isn't quite there. So I do think that it is worth watching. It is out now on Blu-ray. There are some bonus features on this one, which is not always the case for G Kids releases. So I think that's pretty cool. There's a documentary on there. There is a feature animatic and there's an interview with the director as well. And then there is the English dub version of the film. I watched it in Japanese uh, with English subtitles myself, but I probably will get a chance. I'll watch it again in English as well because I do like this style of animation quite a bit and I prefer it usually when there's a good dub and G kids has always managed to have great dubs for the films that they choose. So yeah, I would say give it a look if you're into films by Shinkai, that's really kind of what this is reminiscent of is something like similar to what he would do, but maybe a little more, you know, leaning into that supernatural urban legend ghost story kind of manner of telling the story versus a futuristic and sci-fi and fantasy angle. But it's definitely worth 35 minutes of your time. Last but not least is Black Panther Wakanda Forever from Walt Disney Studios. It stars Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Winston Duke, Dominique Thorne, Florence Kasumba, Michaela Coel, Tinak Huerta, Martin Freeman, and Angela Bassett, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus as well. It is directed by Ryan Coogler, and it is written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole. What's it about? The leaders of the Kingdom of Wakanda fight to protect their nation from invading forces in the wake of King T'Challa's death, while a new threat emerges from the hidden undersea nation of Talokan, ruled by Namor. Okay, so, gonna keep this spoiler-free, as everything is on this show. Just know that I can only talk about some things with a little bit of specificity. So if you want to know absolutely nothing, if you're avoiding trailers or something, I don't know why you're even here, if that's the case. I'm not going to ruin any major plot points for you. and I'm not going to ruin any major surprises for you. That is my promise. That being said, I'm going to kind of break this down by talking about it in three parts to get us going. The first is... The movie's main plot, which is a conflict over resources and the protection of them. Essentially, the Talakans also have vibranium. And there are concerns because the U.S. and other world leaders and countries are anxious to get their hands on vibranium. And they want to take advantage of Wakanda's current state post King T'Challa and hopefully have this vibranium for themselves. Wakanda wants to keep a tight grip on it, namely because it's their resource and also because they don't trust the rest of the world with it, which is fair. So when the Talakans are discovered to also have vibranium, they are very worried about 
their culture, their their nation, their undersea kingdom being discovered and invaded. And this goes back to their backstory and the creation of the Talakan, which seems to be a mixture of some Aztec and Mayan ancestry. This is really the best part of the story to me. I really enjoyed any time that Namor was exploring the culture that he is part of, how he got his powers, why the Talakans are blue, how their history sort of mirrors in some ways Wakanda's. That creates a real drama and a real emotion and a very real understandable reason for why they would be worried about having their resources stripped again and what it might do to them as a nation. The difference is how Namor wants to handle it is a little more aggressive and violent than maybe someone else, aka King T'Challa, might choose to handle it if he was still around. And so this causes conflict. And I thought that this was a great setup for a plot. And I really enjoyed the idea of it. Even if it doesn't play out to a fully satisfying conclusion, it does give some applicable weight to the issues that we're seeing playing out on screen. The superhero stuff is a lot less effective for me personally. There's new characters introduced specifically Rai Rai Williams, aka Ironheart, played by Dominique Thorne. I think she fits really well. And while I don't particularly love her character's inclusion in the battle scenes that take place at times, I really do think that introducing her here makes sense. And this is something that we just have got to get used to or we have gotten used to at this point with MCU movies is they're going to introduce new people anytime we get a sequel. And oftentimes now they're going to be introducing characters, giving us just enough, and then they're going to go off and have their own little Disney Plus series, or they're going to be introduced in a Disney Plus series, and then they're going to be pulled in as a supporting character in some major motion picture in the MCU. And so this is one of those where this character is going to go and have her own little adventures after this, but this was our introduction to her. I think the performance is great. The character, I don't know anything about. So other than the fact that she is also a very smart and an inventive uh, young black girl, much like Shuri herself, which is why I think that they work really good together. Those two characters seem to uh, very much relate to one another. Ironheart, in my opinion, looks like just another Iron Man, but with a different person behind the mask or in the suit. So we'll see how that plays out. It was a mixed bag for me overall, but didn't totally mind her inclusion. There is some other new tech in this film from the Wakandan side that I didn't enjoy pretty much at all, and I can't really talk about, but it involves slightly changing up how the Dora Milaje operate, and it just didn't feel like it fit with the cultural Wakanda that I was introduced to in the first film. And I understand that things need to evolve and there are new threats that require new methods of combating them, but it just didn't totally work for me, but it just didn't work for me uh, in, in a lot of ways. The CGI is okay. I don't think it's terrible. 
most of the CGI in this movie is the Talakans fighting the Wakandans. There are a couple of big battles and then a couple of kind of smaller individual type fights that are more directly hand-to-hand or one-on-one. They look okay. Some of the bigger fight scenes have some CGI that is noticeably unrefined, but it wasn't enough to take me out of a scene. I just didn't think that the scenes were that memorable or interesting altogether. Anyway, the water explosions that the Talakans like to use, they have these water grenade bombs that are awesome. Those are always fun. Every time they used them, that was cool. But for the most part, the fight scenes were just not memorable to me. And then everything underwater, one of the best parts is getting to explore Talakan at one point and be introduced to this undersea kingdom. But it didn't have anywhere near the same effect on me that getting to visit Atlantis in Aquaman and seeing the unique kind of color and stylings of that nation. It it just, it, I mean, it feels like an underwater Aztec Mayan type of culture for sure. But visually we watched the avatar two trailer in IMAX right before this movie. And I just don't think that that did this film any favors because pretty much every time they're underwater, it's so much murkier, cloudier, and it just, It does not look anything like the gorgeous visuals that Avatar 2 is going to bring us. And yeah, just unfortunate for Wakanda Forever that it's coming out and going to be compared to that. I guess luckily it's coming out first. So maybe if you don't get Avatar 2 trailers right before you watch it, it won't be as bad. But it's pretty obvious difference if you do. Other superhero stuff, uh, Everett Ross and Valentina Allegra de Fontaine are the only real MCU characters outside of the Wakandans here. And they play a very small and inconsequential role in the story. Probably could have cut them out altogether. Would have helped with the pacing of this film a lot because it does drag quite a bit. It is a heavy, heavy feeling of loss that just hangs over this entire picture. And the fight scenes are very sporadic and separated by a lot of length. And so there are times when it feels like it's moving extremely slow and or dragging. My guy M'Baku, Lord of the Jabari tribe, played by the incredible Winston Duke. I wanted so much more. We get a few scenes with him. It will never be enough for me. In action, obviously he looks cool because he's a big dude swinging this club. Looks awesome. So I guess it's staff. Uh, I love seeing him fight. But what I really like to see is his gravitas. And he gets an opportunity to have a couple of very, very brief conversation moments in the film that he is just electric in. And it shows you what talent he has. And it just makes you not understand why he is not focused on more. The same thing happens with Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Nakia. Every scene she's in, she absolutely shines. We needed more of her. And this film actually uses Letitia Wright as a large central figure in the way that the story develops. And I just don't think that either Letitia Wright as an actress 
Shuri is a character, probably a mix of both the writing and the performance. Honestly, I don't feel like she's meant to lead a film with this caliber of a story and this heavy of a weight. She feels to me like a supporting character. She is a Black Widow in the Avengers. She is not a Captain America. And unfortunately, she's thrust into this leadership role because we don't have Chadwick Boseman. And somebody has to kind of pick up the majority of the screen time. And they chose her. And I think she does a decent job. But I do think that she particularly holds this back. That choice holds this back from elevating into something anywhere near what it had the potential to be. Conversely, someone like Nakia, played by Lupita Nyong'o, I think if we would have swapped some screen time here and really made her more of a central figure, she has a lot more of that charisma and that power about her that is just natural. And I think she would have kept us engaged in a way that Letitia Wright simply is unable to do. Okoye also has a little bit of a subplot here, and I enjoyed it. She has to wrestle with some failure at one point, which is it's nice to see her go through that. It's a struggle. I mean, there, look, everybody is struggling in this. Angela Bassett, great performance as the queen mother who is still mourning the loss of her son, trying to run this nation, trying to manage how her daughter is mourning as well. and all of these things, and then now this conflict with the Talokans. So Talokans, Talokans, I probably have said it multiple different ways, so I apologize. The third area, or third part of how you're going to talk about this movie is the, the handling of Chadwick Boseman's passing. Listen, I could feel his absence. It's that simple. From the very first scene, the movie reminds us that he is gone, and the characters reference it frequently, all the way through the very end of the movie. It felt so obvious that the plot was set up to have T'Challa versus Namor. And then they tweaked it to make it work without him. And that just was not nearly as successful of a pivot as I think that they had hoped. It felt forced. It felt like unnatural character progression for certain of the, of the cast. And it just was like they were trying to fill a void for where you would expect his character to be. And I, in real time, I could imagine him having the interaction with Namor and this same conflict and it being a completely different and really great movie. But that's just not the hand they were dealt. They chose to keep the same story, of course. They chose to go ahead with the movie. They chose not to recast. I have a good friend, Emmanuel Noisette, who is actually creator of the recast T'Challa movement and has been just really hammering this home for a couple of years now as it gained steam over time. And I was always on board with him and I understood his particular reasons, his connection to T'Challa in a way that I never would have the importance of that character to the, the black community and to black fans. And once Marvel decided not to do that, not to recast T'Challa, I backed off and I said, I'm going to take a wait and see approach. But I feel now I can say in hindsight that they should have recast T'Challa. I'm concerned with the future of the property based on where they left things, to be honest, based on 
who is in what position of authority in Wakanda and what takes place and with how the conflict is resolved. I just don't see it immediately having a path to getting better. I can see it like wallowing in this mediocrity, which is going to be really unfortunate. You can't directly compare this to something like Paul Walker's death because Paul Walker was in the middle of filming his movie. They were able to keep him in that film through the use of some trick editing and his brother standing in for him. But my goodness, I just couldn't help but think about how that was handled in a way that they didn't just kill off the character as well as the actor. They were able to find a way to understandably remove him from the franchise, but keep his legacy within it alive and well. And I just wish they would have found some way to do that here because there's a lot more death in this movie as well, or maybe not a lot, but there are critical deaths, I will say, in this movie that just kind of pile on like it's so heavy because they're always reminding us that Chad is gone. T'Challa is no longer with us. And that is what is hanging over all of this. And then you add on top of it more loss that people have to deal with. And it's just like, oh, goodness, enough is enough. The good things, I love the score from Ludwig Göransson and the use of music throughout. It's very unique with a lot of songs happening at times while characters are speaking. They're just playing in the background as if it was real life and characters were just having a conversation over the radio. I thought that was cool. And then everything non-CGI is shot beautifully. There are a lot of close-ups. The way we see Wakanda from the street level, it looks really great. Everything about the backstory for the Tolicans, like the way that they are depicted, their the costumes. I mean, it's Ruth Carter, so obviously you can expect greatness there. It's all staged very well. So I think Kugler has a good look for this movie. And I found it to be appealing visually. There's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of close-ups as well on characters to really hone in on that emotional aspect of this movie because it's got a lot of emotion running through its veins. There is a mid-credit scene that is pretty impactful and I definitely recommend people stay for. I don't see a lot of people just getting up and leaving because Rihanna's uh, song will be playing over the credits. And it's a very reflective moment uh, about the passing of Chadwick and just kind of sitting in it and being calm for a moment while some of the credits play. And then you get this mid credit scene, but then you can go. There's no post credit scene, thankfully. And this is the end of phase four, as far as I know. Uh, and we move on to phase five. Uh, I think this goes out not with a whimper, but Definitely not with a bang. It is a beautiful tribute. It is an attempt at every turn to honor and recognize Chadwick Boseman's importance to people all over the world, but also specifically to the filmmakers and the cast and those that would have been part of this property with him for whoever knows how long. And I, I felt that truly in my bones. Like, they meant so well, but as a film, there's a lot of misses here. And I think that they probably would have been better served to take a big pause and reset and restructure their idea for how they were going to move forward 
maybe with a little distance even from their own pain because it kind of comes through in a way that makes the movie work less instead of more. Obviously, you're going to go see this, so my recommendation doesn't matter, but yeah, go see it. I mean, you need to see it. It's the next big Marvel joint. It's the sequel to one of the highest grossing films of all time, one of the films with the greatest cultural impact of all time. So obviously go see it. Go see it in IMAX. It sounds great. Mostly looks really good, except for Underwater and a few bits of CGI. Black Panther Wakanda Forever in theaters on November the 11th. If and when you do see it and or anything else that I talked about, by all means, please come let me know what you thought. I'm very curious to hear about your reactions and your experiences. Hopefully I've given you some information to help with your decision making. There are always links to my social channels in the show notes of every episode. So seek me out and let's talk. If you're enjoying the show, always request that you would give us a nice little review, a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We're grateful for all of those. They help us a lot. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening, first and foremost. Stay tuned for the end of this week when Patrick and I will be back with a deep, spoiler-filled dive into Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.